Please take your copy of God's Word. Let's turn together to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, our text this morning is verses 7 to 10. We're continuing to, to work our way through this brief series that I've called Resets, Becoming the Church Culture that Jesus Wants Us to Be. And, and I, I hope you understand that this image of reset, I mean, at least in my mind, came from having to try to get my iPhone to work. I don't, don't know if you've uh, ever had this happen. Early on, I was an early adopter of the iPhone back in 2007, and I'll never forget, um, six months in, my, my phone froze, and I thought, oh no, I broke it. I broke my phone. I didn't drop it. It just froze on me. And so in a panic, I left the appointment I was in, and I drove over to the AT&T store, and I said to the guy in the shop, I said, I think I broke my phone. And he kind of smiled at me, and he took my phone, and he squeezed the side buttons, or maybe it was at that point the top and the side, and it went dark. And then the little apple came on, and it worked. He said, I just reset your phone for you. I was like, oh, hallelujah, I'm so glad. Because those things were expensive back, they're still expensive, but expensive back in the day. I didn't want to have to buy a new phone. Of course, since then, I've reset my phone countless times when it's gotten frozen or stuck. And, and that's the image. As I mentioned last time, I think we have a historic opportunity before us uh, to, to get unstuck. Uh, to reset whom, whom we believe Jesus wants us to be, uh, according to his word, how he directs us as a, as a church culture to be. Last time, we set the cornerstone uh, that Jesus, and not any pastor, not any leader, Jesus is the only true hero because Jesus is Lord. Uh, pastors are servants, your servants for Jesus' sake, but Jesus is Lord, which raises the question, well, what is Jesus up to? What is Jesus's mission in Jesus's world? And what we're going to see this morning, one of the key commitments that we have to have as a church that's going to shape us as a mature community and as mature disciples is that, is that God's mission extends to everything, not just souls. But in order to see that from Holy Scripture this morning, we need the help of the Holy Spirit. So would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you uh, that you have given us your word and indeed you pour out your spirit upon us so that we might know more of your will, indeed that you might gain more of us so that we might be more faithful to you. Lord, please, we pray, do your work in our hearts and lives this morning so that we, we might have our hearts stirred to enter into your great work towards your world, which is nothing less than reconciling all things to yourself. Lord, grant us this grace we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 1 then, beginning in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Even though it's been nearly 20 years ago now, I will never forget my faculty interview at Covenant Theological Seminary, or, or at least I won't forget one particular question that was asked me that day. Uh, Jerem Bars was the one who asked it, our, our longtime professor of, of apologetics. And he asked it with his gracious English accent, which I cannot imitate, so I'm not going to try. But he said to me, Sean, what does it mean to be reformed? Now, that's not as easy a question as you might think, or at least it wasn't for me in that moment. Um, I just, a couple of years before, finished my PhD and working in the area of the American Reformed tradition, and so there was lots of pieces that entered into what I might have said. My, my mind raced as I tr- and spun as I tried to think of exactly the right answer to the question that I was asked. And I settled on saying, what does it mean to be Reformed? Well, it means that God is sovereign over all things. That the God is the king over everything. And graciously, Jerem affirmed my answer, but the, the subsequent discussion showed how limited my understanding of God's sovereignty and thus of God's mission in his world actually was. You, you see, uh, up to that point, my understanding of God's sovereignty was limited to his work in my individual life, whether by salvation or by his providence in governing my life. After all, I had become reformed while I was working at the Whitney Freewell Baptist Church of Spartanburg, South Carolina. That's its own story. It's kind of crazy. But, but I became reformed reading a sermon from the 18th century uh, English Puritan Jonathan Edwards called God Glorified in Man's Dependence. And that sermon radically changed me. It it reoriented my understanding of salvation away from what I could do or what I needed to do in order to be saved to what God must do and alone can do in order for me to be saved. But of course, if if God's sovereignty is limited to, to just that, to saving me and others like me or guiding me and others like me, then 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 if God's sovereignty is only that, then then his mission in his world then only deals with souls, only deals with individuals and their salvation. And if God's mission only deals with individuals and only deals with their souls, then, then the church's mission, and by extension the pastor's role, is to deal with souls to do evangelism and missions and and to leave all the other stuff of life into this somehow secular world or secular realm. See, what I began to understand that day in early 2005 because of of Jerem's question was, no, actually God's sovereignty is much, much bigger than that. And thankfully much, much better than that. Because God is the king over his entire world. And included in his scope of redemption is not just individual souls, but everything. And if God's scope of redemption is everything, then God's mission extends and includes everything, not just souls. You see, Isaac Watts had it right. That God and Jesus had come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. 
Or as Paul said in the companion letter to Ephesians, he says in Colossians 1, that God is reconciling all things to himself through Jesus Christ. Friends, this is the gospel, the good news with which Jesus has entrusted us, that, that God intends to redeem everything. Now, as my colleague, former colleague Jack Collins used to say, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that souls are unimportant. I'm not saying that we should not do evangelism or missions. I'm not saying that redemption is not primarily about our immaterial parts or, or somehow not about sin and salvation or about life after life after death. No. No, what this passage makes clear that we've read together is that, is that God's mission does extend to souls. These verses that we read, they occur in the middle of an extended explosion of praise to the triune God for for all the blessings that he has given to us in and through Jesus Christ. In fact, in the original language, it's one long sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. Thankfully, our English versions break it up so it's readable for us. But, But what Paul is doing is he's piling up clause after clause as he praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for what he has done for us. And these verses, particularly then, as they unpack the blessings that have come to us through Jesus, they speak particularly about how God's mission towards his people centers on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, or what Jonathan Edwards called the grand design of all God's designs, the, the summum and the ultimum of all the divine operations and decrees. That's what verse 7 told us, right? In him, we have redemption through his blood. Now, when, when, when Paul uses that word redemption, what does he mean? What what associations come to Paul's mind when he says in him we have redemption through his blood? Well, undoubtedly, Paul's mind goes back to God's great Old Testament act of deliverance, the Exodus, um, a scene that Moses later in Deuteronomy will, will repeatedly call the redemption of God's people. You see, to be redeemed was to be delivered, to be liberated from slavery, And in order to be redeemed or liberated from slavery, one needed to to have paid for them a redemption price. In the Old Testament, that price was the the blood of spotless lambs. Remember, the blood was taken with the hyssop and put over the doorframe. The angel of death uh, moved over, passed over uh, the people. The firstborns died that were not under the blood. Everybody else was set free and God's people were liberated. And they went to the promised land. All that's in the background here. When Paul says that in him or in Christ we have redemption through his blood, he's telling us that that we are in slavery, slavery to sin. Sin is a tyrant, and we've been set free because the redemption price has been paid. What's the redemption price? Not the blood of spotless lambs put on a doorframe, but the precious blood of Christ which stands for the, for the cross of Christ and, and Jesus' substitutionary work for us. All that Jesus did by dying on the cross sets us free. For those who put their trust in Jesus, we experience deliverance, liberation, freedom. Of course, we're, we're not set free to, from our sins simply to live however we want, but we have been set free. We've been released. 
That's what Paul goes on to say, isn't it? Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In other words, to be delivered from spiritual slavery means having our offenses against God canceled. The expectation of judgment against them done away. We've been released. We've been set free. But set free to what? Well, to to live unto God, to live following Jesus, to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul will go on to talk about that in Ephesians chapter 4. There he uses the language for those who have been taught the way of Jesus Christ that we take off or we put off the old way. And and when we were under the tyranny of sin, we had old practices that were related to our old selves But now that we've been set free, now that we've been redeemed, released from our sins, we're called now to put on new ways of living, new thoughts, new attitudes, new actions that cohere with the new self. And friends, that means that you really can say no to your disordered and oriented desires. You really can say no to lying and anger, to malice and slander, to rage and bitterness. Now, all of these plagues of the heart and soul, Jesus' redemption is meant to release you from those devastating patterns. And so, so God's mission really does extend to your soul. He really does intend to make you a new person from the inside out. And because that's God's mission, it must be our mission as a church. Our mission as a church absolutely deals with your soul. Nearly every week, I'm calling you to repent and put your trust in Jesus, to run to him, to find not just succor for the times when you're sorrowing and sad, but also power to live in ways that please him. God's mission does deal with your soul. But you need to notice that the section we read, it doesn't stop there. It certainly doesn't do that in the original language. As I've already told you, in Greek, it starts in verse 3, and Paul can't come to a period until verse 14. But even in in our English versions, there are not periods here, but commas. And, And that's because Paul wants us to understand that, yes, God's mission does include your soul, but but God's mission extends to everything. In fact, Paul wants to stress that. He wants to bold it or italicize it or underline it. And Paul, as he was writing this in the original language 2,000 years ago, he couldn't go Alt-B and bold something like we can on our computers. No, how did he go about emphasizing? Well, he would repeat something at least twice, often three times, and he does that here. Starting at the last part of verse 7. You see it, he says, according to the riches of his, of his grace, which he lavished upon us, uh, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, there's one, according to his purpose, there's two, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, there's three. So mystery, purpose, plan. Those are all parallel statements, and they're meant to stress For the reader, for you and me, putting it in bold or italics or underline, this is what God is up to in his world. This is the mystery that's revealed. This is the purpose. This is the plan. Okay, Paul, what is it? 
What is God up to? What's his mission to unite all things in him? Things in heaven and things on earth. That word unite has the idea of summing up, of tying all the loose strands together so that everything will, will hold together. Well, what, in whom is the summing up? In whom is, are all things being united? Well, in Jesus, which means that everything, things in heaven, things on earth, will find their ultimate unity and meaning and purpose in Christ so that Christ might gain all the glory and honor and praise because as we said last week, Jesus is the only hero. Every knee's going to bow, every tongue's going to fast that Jesus Christ is Lord. But guess what? That begins with you. As, as you live out the reality of Jesus' lordship over every area of your life, the rest of the world gets to see in you what's going to happen to the world. Because all things will be and are being united together, summed up in Jesus Christ. Well, which things? Paul says, things in heaven, things on earth. What does that mean? What does Paul mean when he says that things in heaven will be united in Jesus Christ? Well, in just a few verses at the end of chapter 1, Paul will tell us that Jesus is already seated on his throne. He says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. So that these, these heavenly rulers and authorities and powers, these spiritual forces that you and I cannot see, Jesus rules over them. And in fact, he is showing these authorities and principalities and powers and dominions that we cannot see. This is what my wisdom looks like. And he points them to the church. He points them to you and me. And he says, through these people, as they live under my lordship in every sphere of life, I am showing my power in this world. And, and if these powers, these supernatural forces, if they prove to be hostile... If they're, if they're used by the prince of the power of the air to attack Jesus' people, Jesus doesn't leave us alone, does he? No, he gives us armor. That's Ephesians chapter 6. And he strengthens us to stand against them, right? Remember that language? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power and the cosmic forces of evil and the spiritual darkness. Well, what are we to do against them? Well, Jesus gives us armor so that we won't run, gives us armor so that we may not, if you fight and, and necessarily try it, he just wants us to stand. Stand, therefore, in the strength of the Lord. Stand, therefore, in the power of his might. But Jesus tells us that these, these things in heaven, these, these principalities and powers, they're real and they will come under his lordship and are under his lordship and be united with things on earth. Of course, the reality is, is that not only is Jesus already seated in the heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 tells us Jesus sees you already seated in the heavenly places. He already sees you and me as we will be, which is utterly glorified and seated in the heavenly places, exercising dominion and rule over Jesus's world with Jesus. That's what it says. It's, we're part of the, the those whom Jesus is uniting in himself. So Jesus is taking the, the things of heaven 
And his mission is to unite those things with the things of earth. So that, so that everything and all things finds its center and unity in Jesus as the sovereign Lord. So that, so that every square inch of this world and of our lives must and will in fact belong to him. In 1881, there was a, a new, at that time, small university founded in Amsterdam uh, in the Netherlands. It was called the Free University. Free university, free from governmental control, but also importantly, free from church control. The free university desired to be a place where Christ would be free to rule in every area of study and endeavor. So that in every sphere, Christ's lordship might be made manifest and the full potencies of those areas might be brought to, to full flourishing. And the founder and rector, first rector of the university was a polymath named Abraham Kuyper. He had been a pastor, but he, but he gained much more notoriety as a journalist and eventually as a politician. He would serve as prime minister of the Netherlands in 1901 to 1905. And as he tried to set the stage that year for his new university, he described the various areas in which Christ's lordship would be brought to bear. In every sphere, in, in medicine, in law, in natural sciences, in, in the humanities. Um, the things of earth must be explored under Christ's lordship, Kuiper insisted. That was God's mission in his world. Famously, he declared this. He said, no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. And there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. So what does that mean? Well, it means that God's mission in his world extends to everything, not, not just your soul. It, it means that, that, that God really is reconciling everything to himself in Christ. And the things of our lives here on earth are, are part of that reconciliation process. Certainly that's the case in the sciences. Sarah and I have had three kids go into the sciences or engineering and we've told them as they've gone into biology and biomedical engineering, chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, this is God's world. It's not a, not a place to be afraid of. No, this is God's world. He made it. And he calls us to explore its, its latent potency, to, to bring it to full flourishing so that he might be glorified. And when they are doing their work, they are actually participating in God's mission. But you might be a lawyer, and for you, God's mission includes your work of seeing justice, of, of establishing proper boundaries and enforcing contracts and ensuring right measures and protecting the powerless. And, and when you do that work, that's all part of God's mission in his world. Or, or you may be a business owner. And as you do your work to God's glory, as you're providing services, you're also offering good work to your neighbors, but also to the employees under your care. And as you do that, you are actually part of God's mission. Because he calls us to love our neighbors through our good works and providing goods and services that improve our neighbors' lives. It does just that. But there's other things beside. But, but just with these examples, 
Don't you see God's mission actually includes all things on earth? Includes everything that makes up our lives. It certainly includes issues of justice. Ensuring that our neighbors have what is, their, what is due to them so that they might flourish in God's world. It includes policing and security as, a, as an extension of the state's mandate to bear the sword. It includes decent housing, where some lords don't take advantage of the poor and where a decent place to live will allow a family to thrive. It includes all this and more. All this, all things on earth, will find their meaning and center and purpose and everlasting value in Christ Jesus the Lord. And he is uniting the things of heaven with these things on earth so that it all might center in him. But here's the punchline. And here's where it all comes to bear on our church's culture, who Jesus wants us to be. If we're going to be the church culture Jesus wants us to be, we need to be a place where being taught what the Bible says about these things isn't viewed as seeking to be culturally relevant. It isn't viewed as wanting to be woke. Teaching you what the Bible says about these things isn't something we would skip over and avoid. Oh, don't talk about justice. Don't talk about this or that. It's so controversial. Just tell me about my soul. No, actually, if we're going to be the church culture that Jesus wants us to be, where Jesus is the hero and his mission is central to who we are, then then we need to hear what the Bible says, the whole counsel of God's word. In fact... It very well may be that that you and I, that we together, we're the ones that are culturally captive. It it may be that we're captive to, to economic or political or social positions that we've received unthinkingly and uncritically from our our families or other pastors or church leaders or from the news that we watch or the region in which we grow up or whatever it may be. And so when we hear what the Bible has to say about these kinds of things, whether it's about justice or race or gender sexuality or economics or whatever the topic may be, we think it's radical. We think it can't be true. We think that liberal pastor is finally getting his way. No, listen, I don't really care about the controversy of the day. I don't really care that much about critical race theory or critical social justice, but I do care about this book. I have spent my entire life from the time I was 16 years old trying to understand what's in this book and trying to teach it faithfully to people and trying to live it out as best that I can before Jesus. And I want you to care about that too because there is no secular realm. There is no forbidden place in which Jesus doesn't have a say. He is sovereign and he will rule over everything over every part of our lives and over every part of our world. And the church's mission then is to prepare you so that you might participate fully and faithfully in what God is doing in his world. It certainly includes evangelism. Missions is right at the center. But this is what discipleship looks like too. Discipleship looks like saying, Jesus, I don't want any square inch of my life to be outside of your lordship. I want to hear the fullness of what your word says to me about how to live in your world. And when we live that way, under God's sovereignty for God's glory, then God's mission is advanced towards that final day when he will finally unite 
everything in heaven and on earth in Jesus so that we will do his will perfectly on earth as the angels do it in heaven. That's his mission. Because what what does God's mission include? Everything. Would you pray with me, please? Lord Jesus, we do desire to be a people that that attends to all of your word, the whole counsel of God. And we want to participate fully in, in your work, in your world, so that all of our vocations matter. They're all part of what you are doing, that in fact, all of our life is spiritual and under your lordship. Lord, we desire it to be all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all our waking powers, all for you. And so, Lord, please continue to do your work in our hearts and lives. Gain more of us, we ask, and gain more of our vision so that we might live in ways that please you. Lord, we ask that you would do this so that you you would be glorified and your people might be blessed. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table in your worship booklet, you'll find the recent hymn, Come Behold.